have hosted my son and I for the last couple of days, and I'm glad you brought the snow back for me. Thank you. I have to confess, I missed it. You know, I lived for 20 years in Austria, and uh, one of the things I liked is the snow and the, the seasons of the year. My wife, of course, doesn't see it that way. And living in Atlanta today, she very much likes the sun, so we're getting the best of all possible worlds. But thank you for putting this on. I really appreciate it. It was nice. Now, before I begin, I want to explain. I do have a bit of an accent. Sometimes people tell me I speak a bit fast, so if you don't hear anything, just go to sleep and you're released. That's okay. Um, there are four tribes in Britain. There are the English, there is the Welsh, there's the Irish, and the Scots. When I came here to America, everybody hears me. They think I'm an Irishman. They, you know, they hear an accent. I said, no, let me explain the difference. The English received the gospel essentially because it was something they could build a culture from. The Welsh received the gospel because it was something they could sing about. The Irish received the gospel because it was something they could fight over. And we Scots receive it because it's free. It's a, it's a true story. <laughs> I was out uh, visiting a friend of mine in Seattle. He's one of these kind of Christian curmudgeons, you know, a little guy that's he's got little aphorisms of wit every now and again. But, uh, you know, we were discussing problems in life and the church and just dealing with reality at times. And he said this phrase, life is hard, God is good, don't get the two confused. And I thought, wow, that is really clever. That is really good. Because if you think, you know, life is good and God is hard, you're going to be in trouble, right? So you think of the, the way that phrase works. Things are changing in our culture in America, particularly for Christians. The culture that many of you grew up with, I became an American citizen just a couple of years ago, I've lived here for a number of years. But the country that you grew up with, and I know that my in-laws grew up with, has changed dramatic, dramatically. In fact, what I see in America today is very much what I saw coming from Europe. I worked in the communist countries for many years. I was based in Central Europe, and growing up in post-war Britain, we had a, a turn to a kind of a socialist-leaning outlook on life in which centralized government and control, all these things took place. But not the politics is not the issue I want to talk about. It was the attitude towards faith and religions in particular. Because the whole idea was that, that, that religion was passed at sell-by date. There was something idiotic that intelligent people with university degrees or people that realized had read Darwin or science or Marx or Freud or Nietzsche or Engels or whatever, or the, the postmodern writers, no longer gave religion any serious cachet. It was really for morons or mentally inferior people or something of that nature. And let me be clear here, that is exactly what I believed until I got converted when I was 20. I mean, I hated religion. I had no time for it at all, no interest, and wouldn't have darkened the door of a church if you had put a gun to my head. Of course, God is a way of answering that. He ambushes you, and that changes the whole thing. But this idea, the topic of my talk today is do not be ashamed. And I want to base it from in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to read these scriptures and hear this with me today. This is the apostle writing to a young man. He's a young pastor. And obviously, at the birth of the early church, you've got the persecution of the Romans. You've got the struggle with breaking free from classic Judaism. And you've got many gods and goddesses. It was a pluralistic world, not unlike our own at this time. It wasn't easy to be a Christian. And therefore, it wasn't easy to be a leader. Many of the leaders ended up dead. So it wasn't one of those easy callings to embrace. Paul, writing to Timothy, says... Therefore, in verse 8 of chapter 1, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, says Paul, for I know whom I've believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, something, as I said, has changed. Religious views in general, and Christianity certainly in particular, and by saying this, I'm not wanting a victim complex or that we are martyrs. I'm not meaning that at all. I'm talking about a change in the mood. But particularly, they come up for much ridicule. Uh, many of you, and particularly you, young people, students, will have seen or have been encouraged to watch Bill Maher's Religious. And it's a kind of a profile of all of the worst representatives or non-thinking types of people that you might find. And so rather than in, in inviting people who could give answers to his questions, he goes deliberately after people who could not answer the questions and make these ridiculous statements. And it makes it look like to be a Christian, you have to switch off your brain, be a nut job, or just be completely weird. Now, we are in family today, and we can admit that we have our share of those in the family. So that's all right. We understand. But trust me, in universities and atheism and politics, you have all the same thing as well. It's not a special uh, uh, privilege of, of, of religious people to be, have oddballs amongst us. But what I do want you to know, and I want you to understand, I want you to be sensitized to, is the psychology of shame and its use as a tactic publicly through media, through books, to make you feel embarrassed about believing in God, about believing the Scriptures, about living a Christian life, is to bring into you a sense of when you're with people and good, you're down in New York City, you don't ever talk about Jesus, and you don't talk about those kind of things in the school, and you don't talk about that in the workplace. So there is a bracketing, a privatization of the Christian experience, but internally you may feel an embarrassment. So that even when you're with your friends because you want to be cool, you want to be accepted, you don't want to be the religious nut job, and so you're quiet, you're silenced. Now, at the heart of this movement is our favorite furry atheist, Dr. Richard Dawkins of Oxford University. And here's Dr. Dawkins in his book, God, The God Delusion. He says, God is a delusion, a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. There you are, ladies and gentlemen. That's according to one of our best Oxford history scientists and professors, says that essentially you are delinquent, you're mad and deluded. In his book, it says, faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the face of evidence. It is a process of non-thinking. It is evil precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument. Now, let me say this. If faith was blind and just simply trusting, then I have friends who should give up their life. I have friends who are doctors, lawyers, university professors. We have the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, where people have advanced degrees in languages and studies. They want reasons for their faith. They do not believe blindly. They believe on facts and evidence, and they take it very seriously. I sometimes wonder if the good doctor doesn't get out very much. If he just walked down the streets of his own university, he would find that there are people there who he should be talking to. But today, perception works very powerfully. So the power of shame is very important. Think about your own school experience. Think about many of you. You know what this is like. Your nose was too big. Your nose was too small. Your head was too big. It was too small. Your head was too long. It was too thin. You were fat. You were small. You were a jock. You were not a jock. Fill in the blanks. 
There was always some tool to make you feel ashamed. And as you go through college life, and as you go through all of life, and even as you go into marriage and all of life, shame and shaming is a terribly painful thing. Because shame strikes to the essence of who you are. Guilt is about what you've done. Shame is about your essence. And it's a, it's a wicked thing. It's been used politically. It's been used psychologically. If we look across history, you have the examples like the Scarlet Letter, you know, from the great uh, novel of Hawthorne and Hester Prime with the, the adulteress and, you know, having to signify her adultery in that Puritan colony. Or we think about the yellow star that every Jew had to wear under the Nazis when they were in Europe. Or the, the cones and the idiotic things that were put on people's heads under Chairman Mao during the Cultural Revolution when they were being shamed publicly. And today, this is happening to people of faith on televisions and comedy, the Big Bang Theory and other things to just make it look idiotic so that Sheldon's mummy from Texas is a real whack job. And yet, they really like her as well, so it's not quite as clear as we would think at times. She shows up as a voice of wisdom. Here's the Webster Dictionary on this shame. What is shame? A painful feeling of embarrassment or disgrace brought on by doing something wrong, dishonor, disgrace, a disappointment. A painful feeling of embarrassment. Now, I've been a Christian now for 30-odd years, and I have to say, is really believing in Jesus that bad? Is this something I should be ashamed of? Are we really psychotic and dangerous? And once again, let me qualify, I know there are religious people that do wrong, but the vast majority that I have ever met, and certainly the vast majority of Christians, have been kind and gracious and good and serving God. So this is a stereotype. How do we respond about this as an antidote? Well, the first thing is not to get a victim complex, but it's to ground yourself in your own spiritual passion and get connected to your God more seriously. I love these verses, a couple, in, one in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, um, one of my favorite verses of Scripture, where Paul is describing his life. I have been crucified, he said, with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. The life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Those are magnificent words. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For the apostle, Jesus was not a concept. He was not a model. He was not a religious figure. He was not the head of a sociological system. He was not advancing a philosophy. He had had an encounter, and let's remember this. Here is a man who is raised and was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was all the way through, top to bottom, a Jewish boy. He had been raised and educated at one of the best universities of the time. Tarsus University would be like Harvard or Yale or like Oxford or Cambridge for us. So the man was highly intelligent. He sees this sect breaking out, this Jesus and Nazarene, and he's, he's angry about it because the man's a passionate person. And he goes off with letters from the high priest to, to put these people in jail, having seen the stoning of Stephen. And as he's walking along the road to Damascus, and I've been on that road, and I've actually been to this place where this happened, the light appears in the sky. Now, let's remember, he's a traditional Jewish boy. Where is the source of light in the Jewish text? It's God, right? Yahweh. So the light appears in a voice. The voice speaks to him. Light and voice He's a Jew, remember. He's been raised with his God. So who else could it be? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, he says, Lord? And then in one of those big oops moments of history, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. At that moment, the man's entire worldview turned upside down. Everything he knew, this God of history, 
Yahweh, the covenant God, was revealed in Jesus, this Messiah that I am persecuted. I mean, how could he possibly deal with that? We know he goes off for three days and he's alone and he's praying and someone comes to him and prays for Brother Saul, receive your sight. And he is transformed, not by thoughts and ideas, but by an encounter with the living God. It was God showing himself that changed his life and that led to the change. So for you and I, if I'm just going with a religiously thin experience, if I have no encounter with God, if I just have a few philosophical abstract thoughts and I'm in the marketplace of life, I can't defend that. Why would we defend Jesus? Well, first of all, let me give you two scriptures. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, says there's salvation in no other name. Now, let me ask you this question. You may not have thought of it this way. Is that reality, and is it truth? Muhammad said, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the Shahada. The Buddhists or the, the Hindus tell us that Atman is Brahman, Brahman is Atman, that reality is all one. There are multiple claims. Is Christianity true? Is it talking about reality? There's other voices in the marketplace. Listen to this one by another of our favorite professors from Oxford, Peter Atkins. He says, and this is very much like what you would hear in many of our universities today, we are children of chaos. The deep structure of change is decay. At root, there is only corruption and the unstemmable type of chaos. Gone is purpose. All that is left is direction. This is the bleak, the bleakness we have to accept as we peer deeply and dispassionately into the heart of the universe. What's he saying? We come from nothing, Life means nothing, we go to nothing. So that's the nature of reality. That's hard materialism. That is philosophical. So just suck it up, ladies and gentlemen. You're born, you live, you die. End of story. That's a claim of reality. He's not saying that this is just a view for Oxford graduates. He means this is what the universe is like. But some people, oh, I'm not buying that. That's a bit too bleak. I, I, I'm more the Oprah to Chopra kind of person, you know, a little bit of the Oprah Winfrey, a little bit, you know, the cool universe. And, you know, God loves everybody and love wins in the end, and we all just make it happily ever after. And, well, here's deal Donald Walsh. Listen, Donald says, to your feelings. Listen to your highest thought. Whenever any of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or reading your books, forget the words. So push Mr. Atkins aside, push Jesus aside, Muhammad aside. Here is the American gospel in a nutshell. It's given to us by Walt Disney. It's on the television 24-7. It's in children's magazines. You hear it all the time. Listen to your feelings. There's the answer. I mean, you come to the end of a Star Trek movie. You come to the end of any great movie, and you find out the answer is within. But if the Bible is true and the heart is damaged and deceitful, you better not be listening to your heart. You better be looking elsewhere. So, these are truth claims. These are exclusive. They may all be wrong, but they can't all be right. Truth is exclusive. So, let's think about this. Paul says about the gospel, do not be ashamed of the testimony in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8 of our Lord. So, here was Paul himself understanding of this Christ that had been risen. He understood that he was one untimely born. He knew that Jesus didn't come to talk about morality. It involved that and included that. But Christ didn't come to make bad people uh, good. He came to make dead people live. Christ is in the life business. Christianity is taking those who are dead in trespasses and sin and giving them the gospel of life. That's what it says in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. So as a Christian, I'm in the life business. Why would I be ashamed of that? 
Why would I find that embarrassing to talk about? Why would I not want to share that? And in verse 9, we understand it says that God had saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to our own purpose, uh, His own purpose and grace. Now, here's a very important issue we need to get a hand on. We have got confused about the nature of grace. I meet people who say, well, they have all kinds of lifestyle issues. They say they're Christians, they say they went to church, but they do whatever they want. They seem to believe that grace gives them then a ticket. Oh, I've got fire insurance that if there is hell or something like that, if there's a heaven, I'll get in there. But grace covers anything else I do, so I don't need obedience. This is nonsense. This was the problem that led to Nazi Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer studied the concept of grace in the post-reformation in the Lutheran church, particularly in Germany, and they got confused about the gospel. And so what happened was, because of this understanding of grace, they began to move away from the, the message and requirement of the Scriptures. They embraced the Fuhrer. They embraced the Germans. They, they, they formed the German church, and they lost the gospel. And listen to what Bonhoeffer describes as cheap grace versus what he describes as costly grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So what's the contrast? He said, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of which a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. So grace means receiving what God does for us, but also what we have received from him and owning that. Grace is an energy, it's a power, it's a gift of God that inspires a changed life. And therefore, Paul says, I know whom I have believed. I know whom, it's not what. In Acts chapter 20, when he's told and warned to not go to Jerusalem, Paul says, I don't count my life as dear to myself. I count it as nothing. Why? Because he was captivated by something. As a young man, I was only a year old in the Lord when the first time I was arrested as a Christian. And here was the, 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 the fun of this. I was a bouncer in a dance hall. I mean, I spent my life from 15 to 20 in fights and getting involved in criminal things. And I mean, I was just ripping the lid off. And then all of a sudden, Christ comes into my life. This God that I didn't believe in, I can't argue when he shows up, can you? Changes my life. And then I, I joined the Christian thing, go on a mission, and then I get locked up in jail. I mean, what is wrong with that picture? I mean, all the time I'm on the other team, I stay out of jail, I join God's side, and I get locked up, not once, but four times. And the only issue, the difference was, I had believed that the things that my captors believed beforehand, but now it was about Christ. And if only I had said I would renounce the whole thing, I could have been a poster boy for them. But I couldn't, because I knew the truth. We do, brothers and sisters, what we value, not what we believe. Let me repeat that. We do what we value, not what we believe. You can come to church all your life and hear the Bible talk about the Bible and say you believe it, but it doesn't affect your prayer life, your giving life, your going life, your sexual ethics, or anything at all. Then you believe things and you think your belief will bring you before Christ, but that's not the issue. It's what you do with what you know that is the test of faith. So this shaming thing is a powerful tool against us. Why Jesus? Well. I like to read the, the books of, I like reading books by atheists to see what they say and if their philosophy holds up. 
I read one recently by H.G. Wells because he was the great atheist that basically one of the foils against C.S. Lewis. And he said this near the end of his life. Our universe is not merely bankrupt. There remains no dividend at all. It is not simply liquidated. It's going clean out of existence, leaving not a rack behind. The attempt to trace a pattern of any sort is absolutely futile. The title of the book, Mind at the End of Its Tether. He had lived his life with his philosophy, and mentally and emotionally, he was exhausted. And here we are as Christians thinking we've got some kind of infantile belief. What would be the pressures against believing? Let me mention three of them for you. First of all, social pressure. That maybe your friends, your, the people you associate with, the university, the school, your hangout crowd, maybe they think it's, it's past its sell-by date. And for you, the number one issue is to be cool or to be relevant. And at the price of being cool and the price of relevance is silence. That you never testify, you never witness, you never speak up for things. And so your price tag of your friendships is too high. Because the gospel is what is at stake. We don't need to be ashamed of bringing the gospel. And, you know, Ravi, we were last week in, in the Mormon tabernacle. He spoke at Brigham Young University. We have ministry going on in top universities around the world. When you go to Harvard or Yale, it is packed out with students who come who want answers to questions. So this idea that it's all past its sale by day is a public myth. The hunger for spirituality is as real as it ever was, ladies and gentlemen. But the church must be the church. And we must have the gospel in our soul. Maybe it's personal doubts. And I know there's people in here with pain. I know there's people with intellectual doubts. I don't want a blind faith. That's not what Christianity is about. There are reasons. I talked to a young man the other night who gave the impression that Christians just simply have blind faith. So the atheist has honest doubt and we have blind faith. But what about in case they had blind doubt and we have honest faith? My faith it's supported by the Scriptures. It's supported by the events of Jesus Christ. It's supported by archaeological research. It's supported by reason. It's supported by all kinds of solid arguments. Are those exhaustive? No, but they're sufficient. They answer the biggest questions of life, the problem of evil and problem of pain. We don't have an exhaustive answer, but we have good answers. So when you're in here, that maybe doubt is stopping you from being bold about your Christianity. You need to realize that doubt has three locations. It begins for some people in the intellect, because some people come to church and they can't get their questions answered. A child asks mommy and daddy, why does God say this? I don't know, just believe it, the Bible says. But they want more than that. They do believe the Bible, but they need it explained. And if you don't get answers, you will lead to deeper doubt. But for some people, it's emotional. They've been hurt. They're, they can't feel God, or they can't sense life, or they're, they're emotionally abused, and they need some counseling, some prayer. They may need some kind of real healing in the soul before they can receive the power of the Spirit or God's healing. Or maybe it's people. We find that one of the number one arguments against Christianity is bad Christians. Well, one of the number one arguments against bad anything is bad people, isn't it? They're bad Christians. They're good Christians. It's not a knockout argument. We need to answer it. Excuse me a second while I try your lovely... I would pass this around, but I don't think you'd want to share. <laughs> Another reason is also rebellion. Albert Camus has documented this for, for us, that sometimes we just simply don't want there to be a God. That was my problem. I mean, really, I didn't really care about facts and evidence. I didn't want a universe with a God in it. I didn't want anyone spoiling my life. I didn't want someone put in the party. And many of the best atheists have said so. That's their issue. It's not intellectual. It's not about those become rationalizations. What they don't want is a cosmic power interfering with 
their life in any way. <clears throat> so we have to wrestle with God. In 2 Timothy, he says, I know whom I have believed. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 3 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Bad things happen to Christians, don't they? Is there anyone in here who's pain-free? Let me see your hand. Anyone who's never had disappointment in your Christian life? Anyone in this room who's not had an unanswered prayer? Anyone who's not had confusion in questions? These things happen to Christians, and the Bible acknowledges that. It doesn't cover this up. When I was a young, I mentioned some of my young tra uh, travels into Eastern Europe. We would pray going across borders. We had specially constructed vans with Bible compartments in them to bring literature into the Eastern Europe. We brought Bibles for the church, psalm books, and so forth. We would pray the prayer, God makes seeing eyes blind so we could get into the country, and we'd bring it to Christians, and we'd deliver the literature, and we'd leave and go home again, hopefully. But on several occasions, I found myself being interrogated, our vehicle being discovered, the Bibles being, thing, being torn open, and then being arrested. God put us in prison. And then I sat through hours and hours of interrogation. Did something go wrong? Did God not answer my prayers? Did God... No, we understood that when we were now there before these communist authorities, that was our mission. It had just changed. We just had parameter change from the king. And we shared the gospel with those that were interrogating us. Bad things happen to good people, but God is still on the throne. And therefore, we have to testify because to whom else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. Let me sum this up with a few points here. Why me? Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So to be a true Christian means death to self, death to your pride, death to your reverence. It doesn't mean to become a worm, but as long as you're clinging on to being cool or relevant or just your friend's coolest person, you'll probably find that there's a zipper over your mouth and you don't want to share. You don't want to speak up. The gospel is public truth. We need the gospel in our society. We need to stand up and say, why Jesus and why not Muhammad? Why Jesus and why not Oprah? We don't need to be rude. We don't need to be ugly. We don't need to be belligerent. We just need to give answers. We need to have conversations and discussions. We need to be, speak the truth in love and not club people with our Bibles, but be gracious. And the grace of God, what does that mean? Understanding the grace of God. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives the man, a man his only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God his life, the life of his son. You are bought with a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. One preacher I heard once called grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. So he is able. But ladies and gentlemen, Paul says, I know whom I believe. I'm getting a bit older now. I had my 57th birthday last week. And you know, you begin to think that things creak and crumple. And you know, I don't know what pastor's like, but I know that I don't get, I mean, I find everything doesn't quite bend like it used to. And it, it goes slower and it gets thicker and, you know, all kinds of stuff happen to you. You know, that's the way life is. And I have to say this, I'm looking forward to the end, not as an escape. You see, some people think the, the notion of Christianity at the end of the story is a kind of an escapism. It's not escapism at all. When you're in battle, when you're in life, when you're in struggle, wouldn't it be nice to know that one day there's a place of rest? There's a place of healing. So take the word of escape out and put in the word completion. Imagine a place 
where there is no death, where there's no suffering, where there's no tears, where there are no in-laws, no, sorry, sorry. Where, there, where, where there is no um, difficulties, where all, of the, all that hinders life and makes life difficult at times, no broken down cars, no broken snow shovels or snow blowers, a place where there is rest and peace and goodness forever. And the end is really a new beginning. That's what the Bible promises, not pie in the sky by and by. It's our new creation, the resurrection of the dead and the healing of the soul and an eternal life in a new reality that has been healed of all of its brokenness. So when Paul looks forward to this, he said, I know whom I have believed. Who was it that he believed? Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. There are two kinds of human beings on planet earth, and we all talk about new humanity, transhumanism. Jesus is the firstborn of a new creation. As in Adam, the first human being, all die. But in Christ, all can be made alive. And if we follow Him, that is good news that Americans need to hear, that people in Ohio need to hear, that our relatives and our friends need to hear. Do not, Christian, be ashamed. You have good news. Receive it in your own soul and give it to others. For Jesus' sake, God bless you. Amen.